You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. And we will start with our New Testament reading in Hebrews 13, verse 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles in the pewbacks around you. If you don't own a Bible, please uh, feel free to take one of those home as a gift. I will, uh, at the end of each of these scripture readings, say this is the word of the Lord, if you please respond by saying thanks be to God. Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This is the word of the Lord. Your Old Testament scripture reading, our Old Testament scripture reading, is Proverbs 22, 1 through 9. Proverbs 22, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the, are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. Train up a child on the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're going to pray, and then that was not... Our sermon text. It was really good though. And I hope you learned something from it and gleaned much wisdom from that text. But then I'm going to read our actual sermon text for today, which will be even better. Is that okay? Good. Let me pray first and uh, and then I'll read. So Father, we live in a world filled with folly. uh, But not folly that is obvious to us. Folly that Um, corrupts, folly that fools us, folly that lures us um, into destruction and death. And yet you as a good father come and you speak wisdom to us. You speak words of wisdom to instruct us on how to live life well. How to pursue faithfulness and goodness and fruitfulness and joy. And so God, we come to you this morning and we study your word because we need wisdom. Because we recognize our need of not only forgiveness of sin, um, not only instructions on morality, but also just basic instructions on how to live life well. So God, I pray that you would come and deliver that to us through your word. That you would train us to live skillfully in a world obsessed with folly. In your name we pray, amen. And so our sermon text for today is Proverbs chapter 5. So I'm going to read all of Proverbs chapter 5, and it's a doozy, a fun one, um, and, uh, and then we'll talk about it. All right, Proverbs 5. My son, be attentive to, to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. 
Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is the word of the Lord. We are in the midst of a series that we do every single summer. We come back to the book of Proverbs and begin to ask the question, how has God instructed us to live? Um, We believe that God is our father. God is not only um, king and lawgiver. Um, God is not only our redeemer, our rescuer, the one who deals with our sins that we might be reconciled to him. He's also a good father who comes and instructs us on the right way to live in the midst of the world that he's created. Um, And so we believe that he's deeply concerned, not just with big heavenly ideas, not just with um, robust and rich theology. He's not only concerned about private morality or even public morality. He's also deeply concerned with teaching us as his children how to live well and skillfully in the world. He's concerned about things like what you eat, what times you wake up in the morning. And he's also concerned with things like sex. And so today we come to this great fun topic and and discuss the whole idea of sex um, and how God has instructed us to take this glorious, actually marvelous gift from his hand and to wield it in ways that honor him and glorify him. Um, There's actually an, an excellent book um, on this very topic by nine, a guy named Christopher Ash, and it's called Marriage, Sex, and the Service of God um, as the subtitle. I love that subtitle because it takes us and it shows us, um, and this is actually true of all the gifts of God, sex included, that they are gifts to be enjoyed, gifts to be relished, and gifts to be wielded for the glory of God, gifts to be wielded in return to him to, to magnify who he is. And the topic we take up today is no different. And as we take up this topic, I want to kind of lay a foundation for us about the nature of what it means to glorify something and what it means to defile something. 
um, what it means to take something and to see it wielded and used in ways that bring honor and glory um, and in ways that defile the thing that you're using. We live in a day and age, a, a culture that is obsessed with sex and hates it. I want to say that again. We live in a day and an age and a culture that is obsessed with sexuality. And it's obsessed with it in such a way that it defiles it and hates it all the way to the core. Um, In the Old Testament, you could have two bowls that looked exactly the same. Um, And so one bowl you use at home to kind of, as you're cleaning the chicken, as I imagine people did, clean the chicken, you take the bones, you take the gizzard, you take the various parts of the chicken and you put it in the bowl um, and the bowl is just used for common use. It's used to like keep the gizzard off the counter in the kitchen. I don't know if you've ever removed a gizzard from a chicken. I have not. I'll be honest. Um, and so it's used for common use. But you could have the same bowl made of the same exact material. And, um, and it could be declared by God himself to be a bowl that's holy. And the only difference wasn't the material. The only difference, um, it, was not, it wasn't the material. It's not even um, necessarily the hands that touch it. Um, the difference between a bowl that was holy and a bowl that was used for chicken gizzards um, is that God, that this bowl was set apart for use in the worship of God, in the honoring of God. So this bowl is set aside for common use. This bowl is set aside for use by God to glorify him and to honor him. And this is how everything is designated in our world. And so when God says things to his people like, be holy because I am holy, he's not just talking about um, our, 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 the, the, the justific- justification that we've received in Christ. He's actually saying to us as a people that we as a community, as a people before God have been set aside for his particular use, for his special use, for use in ways that are to honor him and to worship him. Uh, The text that we looked at before um, um, in, in the book of Hebrews about the marriage bed, that the marriage bed is to be kept pure and holy. Um, Holy is not just a repetition of the concept of purity. It actually is a declaration of the marriage bed um, is to be set aside for use by God, to honor him, to worship him, to glorify him. So when we begin to talk about the nature of sex, when I begin to talk about the fact that I believe our culture hates sex, is at war with sex, and is seeking to defile it in, in the most vile ways imaginable, it's not because it loves sex too much. It's because it recognizes the power of sex as an instrument, a holy instrument used to honor and to glorify God by people to whom that gift has been given. And our culture hates it. And one of the fundamental ideas I pray for you in our church, um, whether you're married or you're single, as you consider the idea of sex and what sex is for, you would understand it to be a holy thing. And there's all kinds of, of, of ways that we're going to distinguish and, and, and describe what does it mean to wield sex to the glory of God. But, but fundamentally, I want you to see that this is a thing given to you by God to be used for God. It's actually the most important thing you can, you can hear today about the nature of sexuality. 
It is a gift from God to be wielded for God. And when that's the center of how we understand the nature of sexuality, it can be a a beautiful, glorious, strange, hilarious, embarrassing, and wonderful thing that brings joy, that brings fruitfulness, and orients every single part of our being, including our sexuality, towards the nature of worship. So before we jump into this text, we make some observations about what's going on in chapter 5 of Proverbs. Um, I want to set us up to consider a handful of things that are happening in this cultural moment. Um, Things that if you're not aware of them, if you're not conscious of them, um, they will so completely distort your understanding of sexuality that it'll be impossible to understand or hear what most of the Bible has to say about sexuality. And so I want to I want to connect these things for us. And underneath all of it, I want you to understand um, this idea that Peter Jones came up. He wrote a book called The God of Sex. In which he said that the fundamental, one of the fundamental realities about just the nature of, of studying religion in the world is that if you change your sexuality, there's something intrinsically religious about the nature of our sexuality. And if you change your sexuality, you will change your God. Um, the the God will be redefined according to what you begin to pursue sexually and and what um, is considered righteous or valid expressions of sexuality. And you've seen this, correct? I've seen it. Like suddenly a person, in in other words, they um, they begin to adopt, um, say, an affirming posture towards homosexuality. Something that's Clearly, clearly out, out of bounds scripturally. It's considered a sin in scripture. That, that doesn't remain disconnected from their idea of who God is at all. Suddenly their whole theology of who God is, his providence, his justice, his righteousness, even the nature of how people are saved get radically transformed. And on the surface you would say, like, I don't know how the two are connected. But but it happens again and again and again because if you change your perspective on sexuality, you change your understanding of what is righteous and unrighteous sex, it's tethered to your understanding of who God is. Um, Tim Keller tells stories um, from years ago when he was a pastor at a small church in Virginia. And, And he began to see a pattern unfold year after year after year. So kids would have been raised in this small Presbyterian church um, would go off to college and then they'd come back for Christmas break and, and the parents would call um, Tim Kel- Pastor Keller um, panicked. Like our, our, our child, is, they're taking some sort of crazy class. Um, they're denying, they, they don't know if they believe in God anymore. Um, they, they don't even think God is real anymore. And, and I don't know what professors got into their mind, um, but I need you to meet with him. So you'd sit down with these um, freshmen, sophomores in college um, who'd suddenly discovered uh, that they didn't think God was real anymore, uh, suddenly had all kinds of questions about the existence of God. Um, and, and he got to a point where he began, um, he, he quit even addressing the apologetic issues, um, quit even addressing their questions about Jesus. And with, within moments of sitting down, he would just say, okay, who are you sleeping with? Because it became this just settled pattern over and over and over and over again um, that sexuality was driving all of their questions about God. 
sexuality and them longing to have whatever sexual desires they had fulfilled uh, became the, the, the necessary prerequisite, the justific- all the justification they needed to suddenly have all kinds of doubts about whether God was real, whether um, what he'd said in, in the Bible was real. So, so the very first thing we have to understand as we begin to think about culture and how we're surrounded by folly right now, defiling folly right now, is that sexuality and religion are inseparably linked. How you, what you believe and what you practice with regards to sexuality um, has direct ramifications on your view of God. And your view of God has direct ramifications um, on how you will view and how you will go about practicing sexuality. So, so that's the first thing. The, the, the first major move that I want us to see that's, um, that's been accomplished in our day is that sexual desire um, is no longer something, you, merely an expression of, hey, I'm a human being and I have particular sexual desires and I give expression to them. But now um, your whole identity within our cultural moment is defined by sexual desire. And so if you're here today, and and, um, maybe you're a guest, maybe you wandered in because we're downtown and you thought, I want to check out a church. And one, I want you to know that we're really, really really glad that you're here. And two, particularly if you're here and and you struggle with homosexual desire, like, here's the thing I want you you to hear from me. The culture around us is telling you that that's the most interesting thing about you. The essential core of who you are is what you desire sexually, how you desire to fulfill your own sexuality. The Bible actually presents a more nuanced and beautiful picture of who you are and who I am and who we are. It does not define us in terms of our sexual desires. It defines us first and foremost as people made in the image of God and created for a purpose with a responsibility to, to, to to reflect the glory and the majesty and the perfections and the holiness of God in the world. In other words, to live under the constraints that God has established in the world. In other words, he defines us in nuanced and beautiful and glorious ways with weighty responsibilities in the world. And we live in a cultural moment in which our identities are being reduced to how do you want to have an orgasm? And as that begins to unfold in our culture, um, that is both directly a result of the fact that we've abandoned any notion of God and therefore abandoned any, any notion of, of, of a transcendent understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God, what it means to be a man or a woman living in that world. And instead, we're simply an expression of our own basest desires. This is a tragic reduction of what it means to be human. And, ironically, it's a complete unraveling of the beauty and the glory of what sex is intended to be. Second move in our culture. Um, I'll throw this quote in there. This is from Carl Truman. Before Freud, sex was an activity for procreation or recreation. But after Freud, sex is definitive of who we are. The, The second move culturally is unconstrained fulfillment. Um, For me to be free, for me to be truly happy, for me to be truly alive, um, I must be free to pursue the great, uh, the the greatest desire for pleasure that I have. 
Um, there's almost no room in our culture for any idea of constraint, any idea that, that actually like, um, there are things that you desire that if you pursue them, they will kill you. If you pursue them, they're actually evil. If you pursue them, they actually dishonor God. If you pursue them, they actually defile you as a human being. We live in a day and age in which there is this call to eliminate all notions of shame. And and there's even calls from Christians to eliminate um, any notion of shame at all in the world. And and frankly, you can't read the Bible without understanding that, that There are shameful things. There are things that we're actually, if we do them, we should be ashamed of them. The the way that the Bible answers the problem of shame in our world is not to eliminate all notions of shame, but rather to say that there's an answer for shame. That Jesus Christ bears our sins and therefore bears our shame in our place. But we live in a day and age, in a moment culturally, um, where one, um, human beings are being reduced to their particular sexual desires. Um, and, and two, that there is this um, understanding of the nature of liberty, the nature of freedom, um, that desire must be fulfilled with, without any constraints. There can be no norming ethics to the fulfillment of our own desires. For a desire to have an orgasm with whomever and however I choose to have it. I've been listening a lot with joy, with terror, and with interest at all the debates circling around since the overturning of Roe um, that, that you guys got to celebrate last week. I wasn't here. Which, as just a quick aside, um, that there's lots of voices right now saying, as Christians, we should temper our celebration of the overturning of Roe. Let me, let me just say this with, without qualification. This is a gift from God and something to be celebrated. Um, th- th- there should have been no like, qualified concerns um, when chattel slavery finally ended in our country. Here was a horrific injustice finally stopped. Um, there should have been celebrating in the streets from Christians. Um, abortion is a horrific, it is the gravest injustice in the history of our country. The gravest injustice in the history of our country. And while Roe doesn't represent the end of abortion, um, it does represent at least one necessary and good step towards that end. And Christians full-throatedly celebrate that. Oh, may we be a people who are generous. May we be a people who care for women and for children and love them and care for them. Oh, but don't let any of that temper the fact that we must be a people who celebrate the end of injustice and even any inkling towards the end of injustice. Because I've been listening to debates circle about the nature of abortion um, um, over the last couple of weeks. What's been fascinating to me is that... um, from those supporting uh, pro-choice, pro-abortion um, advocates, that, that there's, there's no consideration at all that, that volition is included in any way in the nature of, of just the, desi- the decision to have sex. It's as, it's as if we live in this cultural moment where the, the thought that there should be constraints um, or places where um, sex is good and healthy and and life-giving, and there's places where sex would be bad and you shouldn't do it. And um, it's as though that that's, 
that's foreign to the entire conversation. The presupposition is people have a right to fulfill all of their desires and therefore um, they should be free, must be free to have an abortion. So we live in a day and age in which sexual desire has become an identity. We live in a day and age in which unconstrained fulfillment um, is the is the the rule of the day, the lack of rule of the day. And so what this does to humanity is it reduces us to mere appetites, mere desires, mere feelings. It pulls us away from any notion that there's an objective reality, that there is a God, that there's a God who created the world. There's a God because he created the world. He has rights to define how that world is and how that world should go. Because he created us, he has rights to declare to us, to tell us, hey, here's the way that you should live. Um, Here's the good way that you should live in that world. It, it, It actually pulls us away from even being able to understand that this God is good and glorious and he loves us and when he gives us rules, when he gives us constraints, when he gives us a definition of what it means to be a man or a woman, he's not doing it because he's mean, he's not doing it out of arbitrary anger, he's not doing it because he wants to suppress our joy, but rather because he wants us to know him, to love him and walk in the fullness of fruitfulness of what it means to be human in this world. And as our desires become the the ruling Because the only rule of the day, I must be what I want and what I feel. We become untethered to all that is good and true and beautiful in this world. And sex is destroyed. Becomes impossible. Impossible. At times, to just sit down and have a conversation with someone who, who struggles with or identifies as a homosexual. Because the issue has become um, that your sexuality is so wrapped up in, in your identity that, that for me to sit with a brother and to say, look like, hey, this is a sin. This isn't what God desires for you. It doesn't come as a condemnation, merely a condemnation of a set of desires or condemnation, condemnation of a set of acts. It becomes a, 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 an absolute rejection of that human being as a person. That, that's, that's a terrible moment that we're in culturally. To not be able to have a rational, clear, loving conversation about what the Bible teaches about sexuality because our sexuality is so intrinsically wrapped up with our identity in this cultural moment that there's no room for repentance. That's a, that's a terrible fallout from this moment. So that there's a war on fruitfulness in our day. We talked about this with work a few weeks ago. Um, I, I, we, we see it in, in the abortion laws. We see it um, in the degradation of sex to things like pornography or sexual fantasies or marital fantasies. S- sex was meant to be this place of joy and as um, Truman said, recreation, but also creation. A place where more image bearers are made, eternal souls are produced to the glory of God. And there is in our culture a war on fruitfulness. And it becomes increasingly, in this environment, it becomes increasingly difficult to explain why sexual restraint, why waiting, why avoiding porn, 
by avoiding one night stands and sexual immorality, um, why that makes any sense in our world. It comes off as mere moralism or mere kind of harping about religion. When what we're actually talking about is the nature of, of what it means to live a good and fruitful and joyful life. So, how does the Bible describe, how does Proverbs 5 specifically address these things? Um, the first thing I want you to see is that he's highly concerned, particularly in the first 14 verses, to call his son, this is um, Solomon talking to his son, to call his son to restraint. Um, this is, in fact, one of the most difficult jobs in parenting, not just with regards to sex, but with regards to everything, but, but teaching children delayed gratification, delayed joy. Like one of the features of the world that God has put us in, not, not one of the bugs, one of the features of, of the world that God has put us in um, is that, to be honest with you, apart from like salted Oreo ice cream, um, everything else in this world um, that, that has the most payoff in terms of joy and pleasure requires discipline, constraint, and practice. I'm going to say that again. That, that everything in this world, apart from, I could think of some other things maybe, but I'll just stick with salted Oreo ice cream because I delight in salted Oreo ice cream. And it always comes pre-made. Someone else made it. Um, uh, apart from salted Oreo ice cream, the, the, the things that God has given us that, that have the biggest payoff in terms of joy, pleasure, delight, all require constraint, patience, and practice. Think about playing the piano. Like, any, really any instrument. There's not an instrument that, that like, when it starts, I, I took piano for, I think it was 11 years. I can't play a lick now, but, um, and, and for 11 years, like, when you practice, it, there's not joy, like, learning your scales. There's not joy, like, um, you know, learning your particular fingering on different pieces. There's not joy in the first, like, years of learning to play piano then like, where does the joy come? Like when you can actually sit down and read a piece of music and begin to play it, um, when we can sit down with a sonata and, and hear it and play it, like it requires like practice. It requires patience. It requires diligence. And there's real joy on the end, at the end of that. Think of learning a language. Think of um, even reading good literature. Like it's, it's not easy. Like even, I, I read a lot. And it's hard for me sometimes just to switch from author to author because um, it's particularly if you're jumping centuries because this century sounds way different than this century. And like having to read at a new pace with new language and realizing like, oh, this is John Owen means he's going to go on for like 40 pages like proving why he put the the in the middle of that sentence. I'm like, like that's, that requires patience. It requires practice, but there's joy on the other side of that. Well, for some of you, John Owen might be not as much joy as other people you could read. Like this, um, it, this is at the heart of, of any pursuit of joy. And so for the first, 
For the first 14 verses here, there's just this call to this son to say, hey, there's going to be an allure for immediate, easy access to pleasure. My call to you is to say no. <coughs> to wait, to avoid it. Her lips are like honey. Um, it, it will be alluring, it will be tempting, it will have an immediate payoff of joy, but it will destroy you. So the first thing that's, that's put in place for us as we think about the nature of sex is the absolute necessity of constraint. Of understanding that there's a place for sex. There's a really good place for sex. But it must be in that place and no other place. Now, the second thing I want you to see is just the language of joy. Listen to this. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. This is not prude, bashful language. Drink water. Speaking to a husband. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer. Rejoice. Don't you love it when the Bible commands that you rejoice? Not like, hey, if you can rejoice, you know, I hope you can but like it lands on it and says, rejoice. Does that bother you? It's one of the most bum-fuddling things about the Bible. We live in a day and age in which your emotions, your desires rule you. I just used the word bum-fuddle and it just struck me that I did use the word bum-fuddle. <laughs> you should use that word. Like we think we live in a day and age in which you are ruled by your emotions. You're ruled by what you feel, what you desire. And yet on every single page of the scriptures, what does it do? It commands your emotions. Like it doesn't say like, hey, move your head to the right. You're like, oh, I can do that. Well, it says rejoice. Take joy doesn't say, act like you have joy. It says, no, rejoice. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Husbands, maybe husbands who've been married for a long time. Can you listen to me for a second? Here's what God commands you to do. And this is amazing. Take joy in the wife of your youth. Rejoice in her. Like, stop right now and look at her. Rejoice. Like, God gave you that wife. And most of you, most of you didn't deserve her. Like, you won whatever game is at play. Like, you won that game. Like, Here is God in all of his 
power and all of his glory, actually doing the very opposite thing that our culture wants us to do, um, particularly with sexuality. He, he doesn't say, hey, be ruled by your desires. Go see your desires fulfilled wherever you happen to find them go. In other words, find your desires and chase after them. So um, if you desire to have sex with a man, um, go desire, see that desire filled. If you desire to have sex with a, a woman or another woman or a younger woman or an older woman, whoever it might be, go chase after that. No, he says, look at the wife you married and rejoice in her. It's a command. I mean, this is the kind of God we serve. And yes, it's bumfuddling. I don't even know what the word means, but I just like it now. It's stuck when you use it daily. Because it's commanding the very thing that everything in our culture is saying we should serve. It's saying, no, that should serve me. Your desire, your joys should serve me. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Some translations say a lovely goat and a graceful doe, um, which actually matches with places in Solomon where he's constantly comparing a woman's breasts to goats. Um, I don't understand that, but he does it so great. Um, he's much wiser than I am. Let her breasts fill you at at all times with delight. Be intoxicated, be drunk. Listen to this language. This isn't prudish language. This isn't constraint for the sake of killing joy. Here is a command of God. I'm using imagery like cisterns and springs. I don't need to explain that to you, do I? commanding you to delight in this stuff, to to find joy in it, but to find joy in it within the confines, the constraints of marriage between a husband and a wife. So first, there are constraints, glorious and good constraints given to us by a wise and good and faithful God. Um, And two, rather than um, your sexual pursuits, serving your desires and your emotions um, quite the other way around. Um, You should look at the wife of your youth and delight in her. These constraints bound up by covenant. And I want you to see this last piece, um, this last piece that that I'll point out here. Um, There is at the foundation of what sexuality is um, and what sexuality is intended to be and how sexuality is, it is meant to be a blessing and to bring, um, the, bring joy to us, there is foundational to it the difference between men and women. And not just physical differences, although those are absolutely essential, but all the ways that men and women are fundamentally different and differently made and wired differently and concerned about different things and just even the way that they approach sexuality and pleasure differently, like like those things are a feature, not a bug. They might be frustrating to you at times. They, They require like years of figuring out. Some of you, decades... But these aren't bugs, they're features. Which is just another way our culture is at war with the the beauty and the glory of what sex is intended to be. 
to flatten all distinctions, to make us kind of sexless, genderless monads bouncing up against one another. But when reality, he wants the fullness of what you are as a man um, to, come in, to come into covenantal contact with the fullness of who this woman is um, and to see the two of you bound together as one for the, for the production of joyful, good, godly fruit and pleasure. So those differences, differences in sexuality, heterosexuality, it is not merely kind of um, God squashing desire. He's actually built that into the nature of the universe as an expression of his glory, of his beauty, and one of the constraints that's put upon sex. There would be a man and a woman married, bound together in covenant, learning for the rest of their lives in that constraint to take more and more and more and more and more joy in one another. So all of this to say, sex is a gift to you. It is given by God. It belongs to God. It is to be wielded and used in service to God and is there and only there you can know the fullness of joy and and grow in a knowledge of the joy of what it is when it is given to you. For for those of you in this room who are single, and I don't know how long you'll be single, I I just want to say this to you. Um, We live in in a day and an age in which the culture would cause you to believe that you're somehow incomplete as a human being uh, unless you find yourself sexually fulfilled. Can I just tell you that no matter what you feel and no matter what you're being told, that is false. By the way, it's the most easily defensible thing in the universe. Jesus never had sex. He was never married. He's the most complete human being who ever lived. Do not believe that lie. Don't use that lie as a justification for sin. Brother, trusting in the Lord, I, I, I pray that all of you who want and desire that gift would receive that gift, that gift in marriage. But I don't want you to ever have a foundation that believes that somehow without that, I'm less than a man or less than a woman or less than fully alive because our culture will tell you that. You're not. It's in Christ that we find our identity. It's in Christ that we find our fulfillment. A couple of practical considerations from this text, and we'll take communion. Married couples in this room, drink. Drink from your cisterns. Drink the wine that God has given you. Um, Sex is, uh, I think, often imagined as we head into marriage as merely as this kind of continuous, spontaneous activity. That never slows down and is always awesome. Now, for most of you, that's not true. Um, Here's what sex requires it requires work, it requires talking, it requires scheduling time, it requires like conversations and long walks, and it requires like um, growing together in a knowledge of one another, um, and not just physically, but growing together in a knowledge of one another over decades. 
And so what I want to encourage you to do is to pursue this gift. Don't see it as secondary. Don't see it as ancillary. It's actually one of the fundamental things that's meant to be to give expression to your love for one another in your marriage and get to work at it. Like it, it takes work to learn how to enjoy good wines. To be able to distinguish between different flavors of wine. You, you should approach sex like that. Um, something that is learned over time. It involves all of life, not just um, a, a handful of minutes in the bedroom at night. And so married couples get to work. Second, for everyone in the room, go to war with unconstrained desire. Go to war with every place you find your own heart and your own body at war with the the good wishes of God, the good law of God, the good wisdom of God in this world. And understand this, there are billions of dollars being spent by the smartest people on the planet to teach you, to train you, to disciple you, to believe that you are entitled to see all of your desires fulfilled. So do not go into that battle unprepared. Let me say it again. There is billions and billions of dollars being spent and put to work by the smartest people on the planet. Way smarter than you. With rooms full of computers and things all bent on training you and teaching you that you are what you desire and you are entitled to see those desires fulfilled in whatever way you see fit. And what I'm calling you to do, I called the men to this a handful of months ago at one of our um, Be a Good Man nights, go to war with it. Go to war on your own soul. Go to war on your own browser. Go to war on just recognizing it constantly all around you being bombarded and thrown at you. Um, go to war with it in your own thought life. Go to war with it in your own fantasy life. Go to war with it in every place that you see it rear its head. Go to war with it publicly. Go to war with it privately. But do not stand still. And do not pretend that we live in a neutral world. We don't. And so go to war. And last bit for parents. I, I think we should learn from Solomon here. One of the most important things you can teach your children, no matter what age they are, is to teach them constraint, to teach them patience, to teach them to wait. I'm learning to joyfully and easily say no to certain things and yes to other things. Or, or Yes to certain things, but yes at this point, or yes after this. Um, simple and small ways to teach our children over and over and over again that the way that God has designed the world is the most pleasurable and delightful things He intends to give us require discipline, they require patience, and they require practice. So tether the delights that you give your children to those kinds of things, not um, that they're earning. Not that they have to like prove that they're righteous enough, but, but as a way of teaching them, like this is the way of wisdom in the world. 
Because the reality is, is that if you teach them now at age seven or age nine or age 15, that, they're, that the, the way that the world is designed is that when they have a desire, it should be immediately fulfilled. When they have a desire for pleasure or for a piece of candy or to watch a show or to whatever the thing is, um, it should just come right now exactly as they want it. How will they learn anything different with something as grave and as weighty and as fruitfully dangerous as sex is? They won't. So parents, learn to teach them the value of discipline, of diligence, of patience, and practice. As I come to the end of this, I, I realize that we live in a world that's just destroying people left and right sexually. It's a sitting room like this. There's no way I'm sitting here, standing here, um, that there are not people in this room, even in the last couple of months or weeks or even days, maybe last night, maybe for some of you this morning, where sexual sin hasn't invaded your life, sexual addictions haven't invaded your life, lust um, hasn't corrupted the marriage bed for you, maybe adultery, maybe pornography, maybe it's those um, daydreaming fantasies about what would it be like to be married to him rather than him. I don't know what they are, but, but here's the thing. I'm not naive enough um, to stand up here and presume um, that all of us, like we're the righteous ones, like we're the ones unaffected by those billions and billions of dollars and really smart people and the fact that our own hearts are hardwired to like be selfish and go after what we want. Let me tell you about the gospel and how the gospel works. Um, the gospel isn't it that God, not that, that God comes and loves and forgives all those who are already righteous. We're about to step down and, and eat this bread and drink this wine. And at the heart of the message of what this table is, is a proclamation that, hey, all of you who are unworthy, all of you whose lives are marred by sin, all of you whose sexuality has been corrupted um, by sinful desires, by adulterous desires, by lustful desires, by homosexual desires, by whatever they, the things may be, um, if you will turn away from those things, if you'll simply cry out for help, that God would forgive you, that God would cleanse you, that God would help you to turn away from those things. Those are the exact people that are welcome at this table. Jesus comes not to die for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. He comes bearing all of our sexual sins so that all who trust in him all who renounce their own independence from him, their own sexual independence from him. They're cleansed, they're washed, they're forgiven. God comes to make his home with you. In other words, you don't fight this on your own in the hopes that you win enough so that God loves you. Now, your only hope in any of it is to trust in, to rely upon the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God and the strength of God. So let's prepare for communion and pray. Father, we come now to this table, this table that you set for us, not because we're worthy, not because we've cleaned ourselves up enough, but rather as a good God, a good God who gives laws, a good God who gives wisdom, but also a good God who gives grace and forgiveness and cleansing. We come to a table where you feed us, you wash us, you forgive us, 
you strengthen us and you call us to an obedience and reliance upon the work of Jesus. So I pray now that you would do that again with bread and wine and that we'd receive these gifts as we're to receive all gifts from your hand, one by faith and two with joy. May we pray, amen.